If uh, you have a Bible app, uh, you can open it up and click on events and you'll be able to see the scripture that I'm going to be opening up today and that we're going to talk about together. If it's your first time, my name is James and uh, I'm not just the first person to run up on stage and start talking. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, we are going to take some time to look at how the scripture teaches us about the way uh, that we live in our world today. We've The first three weeks of the new year, we actually took a look at the calling of these three Old Testament prophets. And if you have a Bible, like an old book-style Bible, the first big chunk is is called the Old Testament, and the last about a third is called the New Testament. And and that basically refers to the old way of things going on before Jesus and the new way things uh, were going on because of Jesus. And in the Old Testament, there were these prophets. And the big ones, uh, not physically big, but they said a lot of words, Uh, were Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And they were uh, called by God in a particular way to uh, say the things to people uh, that God wanted them to say. When um, the Holy Spirit, which is a part of the Trinity, like the full presence of God, uh, enters into these Old Testament prophets, the way it speaks about that is the same way that it speaks about... uh, New Testament Christians. And so the particular presence of the Holy Spirit in a person's life in the Old Testament was seen in these prophets, but now that we live in a New Testament era or a post-New Testament era, uh, we experience that same feeling of the Holy Spirit. Every single uh, follower of Jesus has that and has the uh, full calling and all of the gifting and privileges and responsibilities of a person who has the indwelling God in them. And so when we talk about these Old Testament prophets, we should resonate with them because as these Old Testament prophets were given the task of telling people what God was saying, uh, we are given the task of telling people what God is saying. And not necessarily in like a mysterious, mystical kind of way like like Miss Cleo does on TV. It's much more... Uh, like, this is what the Scripture teaches us, this is what the Bible teaches us, and then this is what uh, the Bible says to what you're going through or what our world is going through. And so there's kind of this need both for a little bit of boldness and also that boldness comes from knowing our Scripture. And so we open our Bibles every week and we learn little bits and we grow a little bit at a time. And, and you meet people that have been Christians for as long as you've been alive And they seem to know the scripture a little bit more than you and you hope to someday get there maybe so that uh, you can experience God the way they're experiencing God. And that is the truth for these Old Testament prophets and it can be the same truth uh, for us today. Today I want to, we're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 36, which is everybody's favorite chapter in Ezekiel, right? When you were thinking Ezekiel, you were thinking chapter 36. That's a joke. So, (laughs) all right, um. You don't even know how many chapters there are in Ezekiel, and neither do I. When, uh, when we talk about Ezekiel, though, he lived uh, like five or six hundred years before Jesus, if you want some kind of context into Ezekiel's life. And he lived, he was part of the Hebrew people or the Israelites or the Jewish people. They had different terms were used to refer to these people, the people of God. And the people of God had kind of forgotten about God or had stopped living for God. And, and I think they forgot about God because they convinced themselves that they were preferred by God. Like God liked them more than he liked the other people. Yeah, God loves everybody, but you know how you love some people but you don't really like them? That's kind of how they felt 
that God felt about all of humanity. God actually likes us, and he loves you because he has to, because he's God, but you were a bit of a pain, and so God doesn't like you as much. And when they started feeling like they had some kind of preferred status, they thought that they had like a golden ticket, like they could do whatever they want and live however they want, and, and they would be in because God had said they're in, and there's no going back against what had God had said. Uh, we see this today, like this isn't something that happened a long time ago, this happens all the time. If you were uh, young, like, like me, when you first became a Christian, you probably said a prayer, right? And, and you said some things that somebody told you to say. Uh, and, and there's people that think that that prayer is like, uh, it's, some people call it the sinner's prayer. It's, it's like a golden ticket. So you can pray the prayer, you can live like hell, and you can get into heaven, right? And, and uh, to me, that theology... Um, isn't the best experience of life that's possibly out there. Uh, we, I actually believe that your life right now matters. Uh, that's why we play videos like, like we just watched, because the way that you live right now makes a difference for you and makes a difference for the world around you. And, and just your wanting to know the Scripture better, to worship God more, actually changes your life right now so that when someday I go to heaven, it's not like a sudden change. It becomes much more of a natural progression, like uh, heaven, you, when I go there, I'll experience like, oh yeah, this is where I belong. Like this is how I live, and this is kind of normal for me. So Ezekiel is preaching to people whose experience is much the same as people's experience today. And if we think about uh, our culture. There's still a lot of people that refer to our, our culture as a Christian culture, uh, but there's a lot of things in our culture that we would say maybe are different than Christian. Uh, that there are, we have much more pluralism, uh, which means like um, multiple religions, or people will say things like all the religions go to the same place, or they'll say all the religions are equally bad. Uh, and so we don't live in a world um, that that the Bible would clarify as Christian, or that the Bible would call Christian. Uh, we live in a world, um, a lot of sociologists, Christian and secular, call it like a post-Christian world, or a post-Christendom world. And, and Christendom is very difficult to get out of, because it started or just after the year 300 with Constantine. He kind of initiated, he was the first government to say, everybody must be a Christian. And so everyone was a Christian all of a sudden, or, or, or you were dead. <laughs> and, and it kind of rode through to up to maybe two or three generations ago, everyone was a Christian. It's kind of like if you live in the South, everyone is a Baptist, right? Or I lived in northern Ontario in Canada, and if you're English, you're Protestant, and if you're French, you're Catholic, right? It's just, you may have never been into one of those churches, but that's what you are. I mean, you don't know what that means, but it's what you are. And so Ezekiel is talking to people where that's their experience. And, and he's talking to uh, people who know who God is, maybe just culturally, though. Maybe just kind of, uh, he's the guy that we all talk about, but nobody, like, uh, everybody believes in God, but nobody really knows what that means. Uh, and so when Ezekiel enters into the picture, the nation of Israel, or the Hebrew people, the people of God have been exiled as God's judgment on them because their right standing with God was tied to the place that God had brought them. They were slaves in Egypt. This is taking an amazing story and putting it in 30 seconds, is giving it no justice. Moses led them out of Egypt. 
uh, God chose Moses to lead them out of Egypt. They wandered in the desert for 40 years, and they took over the promised land uh, by, by God's design. And so them living where they lived was a sign of God's favor to them. And as long as they lived there, they assumed God prefers us, or we are in right standing with God. And so in order for God to communicate that they weren't in right standing, he had to move them out of that land. Uh, and so we, God isn't moving all the Christians out of America to say something about America or anything like that would be a popular thing to say on TV. But uh, the, what God did then is not the same as what God does now. But we can see the same things happening uh, spiritually. It's just not, God isn't going to physically exile all of us over to Babylon of all places. Uh, so the, the Israelite people are exiled over to Babylon, and then Ezekiel speaks to them. And when there seems to be like no hope, Ezekiel uh, arrives on the scene and says that there is hope, and that God is actually going to do something. And God is going to do something, um, except not for his people. He's going to do something for himself. That God is going to save them from these people who have taken over their country, but not for their sake, but for the sake of his own name. Not to make them seem good, but in order to make God seem good. And there's this uh, passage in Ezekiel 36 where, it's, if you have subtitles in your Bible, it's Israel's restoration is assured. And that God's like, this is for a time, and then you're going to be refined and come back to me, and we're going to go uh, back into the promised land, which for the people they would understand not that they get back what God gave them, but they are back into right standing with God. And so Ezekiel is preaching hope that even if things aren't right between you and God, as, a, as individuals and as a people group, someday it can be. That it, no one is so far from God that they're beyond the reach of God. So there's an incredible amount of hope here. And then there's this small passage that Ezekiel, this is verse 24, and it'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible or an app with you. Uh, this is God's promise to God's people uh, while they're in exile. He says, For I will take you out of the nations, and I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. So God is actually going out to get them. They aren't turning to God. God is reaching to them. And he's pulling them from all these different places back to the place that, refer that would remind them of their relationship with God. It isn't like it's a site, um, not for those who, um, like this would be a significant moment because in their culture, gods were localized. The Babylonians had their gods, and when the Israelites moved to Babylon, they assumed the Babylonian gods beat the Israel gods, right? But if God of Israel, who belongs over on the coast, comes all the way over to Babylon and does something, then it's seen as your God must be really powerful because he travels. And God of the Bible is omnipresent, which means he's everywhere. And so to think that you can be in a place that God isn't, it, that's, in, that's not true. That's an impossible thought because God is in all places and in all times. And so when God says, I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land, he's not referring to something great that he's going to, like something he's going to overpower the other God. He's saying, when you were here, I was here. And when you were away from me, I was here as well. If you've had an experience in your life maybe where you were close to God and then you maybe struggled and were far from God, 
it's a remarkable thing when you start to notice that God is there even when you're struggling, even when you don't believe or even when you doubt or even when you uh, are intentionally walking away from God. It's impossible for you uh, to actually get away from and hide from God. It's kind of the story of the Bible. It started in the Garden of Eden when they tried to hide from God, and he's very good at Marco Polo, and you will not win that game. So, <laughs> Verse 25 says, this is what God will do. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols, referring to the Babylonian gods. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors and you will be my people and I will be your God. He actually tells them that he is going to sanctify them. And sanctify is kind of a, uh, like a theology word, a Bible word, referring to what happens to a person after they've given their life to Christ, after they've committed to uh, being a follower of Jesus. I imagine for most of us, the day that you decided to be a follower of Jesus, not all of your bad habits, not all of your habitual sins just suddenly ended. Sometimes that happens, it's miraculous. But I would bet that for a lot of us, there's a story of God working in us over time and hopefully God continuing to work in us over time. So that if you became a Christian here and then you traveled uh, forward in your life, your sanctification is kind of a growing into being more like Christ. So that hopefully your relationship with Jesus after one or two or five or seven decades has actually grown and isn't just riding like some kind of flat line where you have the same level of faith, the same level of obedience, the same no level of knowledge of God over decades. <laughs> it might seem really slow in the day-to-day -day or the week-to-week, -week, but if you can think back, uh, you know, if you were around in the 80s and 70s and 30s and 40s, and you can think back that far, I'm only speaking to a few of us right now, but you can actually see God's work in you so that you have moved forward and you feel like God is actually doing things in your life. That's sanctification. And God, the metaphor that God uses for sanctification is that I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will take away your hard-heartedness and give you a soft heart. And there's a holiness that happens in that exchange. A holiness, I, holiness is like the theological branding of my theology. Uh, and it's the theological branding of this church. And I know that means nothing to us. But holiness uh, is like a camp of um, the Christian church. Uh, and we're in a family, if you don't know this stuff, we're in a family of like Salvation Army, Nazarenes, Methodists, those kind of people are kind of in our camp. Uh, we're not in the same camp as those Baptists, right? Uh, if you look at it, though, they're winning. But anyways, uh, uh, but in, in our theological camp, we use the word holiness. And holiness means the way you live matters. The problem is holiness has come to mean you have to live perfectly. Like people have exchanged the word holy for perfect. And I, 
don't think any of us in this room would claim to be, well, very few of us in this room would claim to be perfect. And those who do struggle with the sin of pride, right? So uh, when, when we talk about being perfect, that's not something I, I would say, oh, we, we're perfect, we never make mistakes. Or we, uh, like, that's just not something that I would argue for. Instead, I would argue that holiness is a soft-heartedness towards the world even though the world doesn't deserve your soft-heartedness, either because of what they're doing or because of what they've done to you in the past. Our hearts grow hard as a reaction to our circumstances. And some of you might have stories in your life where you have a hard heart towards different things or different people, and it's probably understandable. Like maybe you're protecting yourself. Maybe you, like your hard heart Maybe you don't carry the blame for that, like you've genuinely been hurt. And the miracle is, when God enables you to release that hard heart, God actually takes your hard heart and gives you a soft heart, gives you a heart of flesh, in a situation or in a circumstance or in a world that doesn't necessarily, that hasn't earned a soft heart from you, that doesn't deserve a soft heart from you, and yet you live with a sense of hope regarding the world around you. This isn't salvation. This is Ezekiel talking to the people of God. If this was today, this would be God talking to the Christians. It's not the people who are away from God who have a hard heart and need to turn soft. It's the people who are with God who can develop a hard heart even though they're with God. And that heart needs to be replaced with a soft heart. I would say that a lot of times we think that this is what happens with salvation. But the scripture's teaching us that this happens after salvation. That you give yourself over to God and there's a slow, sometimes sudden, but most of the time slow change that happens in you. A, uh, a, a, this is so cheesy. A heart surgery that God does. And you call God the great heart surgeon. That's super cheesy, but I'm a pastor, so I have a license for that. When you think of what God is doing in you and actually changing the innermost parts of you, and then your exterior change happens not because of your discipline or your work or your habit change, but because of a motivation that happens in the very most inner parts of you. And then God says, when God moves and then God sanctifies and then God fills you, you actually live for God. That's what verse 28 says. Then you will live in the land I give your ancestors. It's not a promise that someday we'll move to another land. Living in the land for the Hebrew people at the time meant being in right relationship with God. So we would say, then you will live in right relationship with God like your ancestors and you will be my people and I will be your God. God is actually saying, after I do my work in you, then you will experience the fullness of life. And we would love, like I would love it to be like an, an easy or an automatic thing, but there has to be God moving, God sanctifying, God filling, and then you live. And we spend a lot of our time trying to figure out how to live when we would need to back up to like step one, two, and three and allow God to work in us, in our innermost being, not just changing our habits, but changing our motivation behind those habits. 
if we struggle with living, the problem always isn't, isn't always living. The problem sometimes is our relationship with God or our innermost motivation. And you can see people who on the outside look like fantastic Christians, but on the inside it's still hard. And you can also see people who look like terrible Christians, like genuinely terrible, but on the inside it's still soft. And what God is concerned about is not first behave, do the things, sing the right songs, attend the right church, do the right actions, but actually change your motivation in your heart. I would actually say, and this is an aside, I would actually say that when we don't have the right motivation, uh, when we aren't uh, when we aren't worshiping God or serving God or praying to God out of a soft heart, that action, like when we have an exterior action but not an interior softness, that actually increases the hardness of our hearts. I think that's why a lot of young people who are, um, and I'm not telling you how to parent yet, but if you're forced to do certain religious behaviors, it actually becomes an increasing negativity towards what that religion actually means. And I'm not telling you don't force your kids to do whatever, you know, they're your kids, you get to screw them up the way you want. <laughs> but when, uh, if you th can think of back things that you've been forced to do but haven't wanted to do, when you do them, it actually increases your negative feeling towards those things. It's very, very rare that you would think, oh, I was forced to do something I didn't want to do and then I actually liked it, right? And... And I don't necessarily blame the kids for that. I kind of blame how boring most churches are, but that's another thing for the Baptists. When, verse 15 of John... <laughs> I'm going to flip from Ezekiel. Each week over the next three weeks, I'm going to flip from an Old Testament passage over to a New Testament passage because I want to show you that what happened isn't something that happened a long time ago, but it's something that matters today. In John chapter 17, if you have a Bible and you're turning to there, it'll be on the screen too, so you don't have to worry. But in John chapter 17 is the night before Jesus dies, and it records a prayer that Jesus gave. And I don't know how we got a record of this. I don't know if someone overheard it, or God just told someone later, or Jesus told them later. I don't know, because Jesus rose from the dead, so he could have told them. But when Jesus prays this prayer, it's John 17, it's called like the great high priestly prayer, because Jesus actually prays for himself. And then he prays for his disciples, and then he prays for all believers in all times and in all places. His disciples, meaning the 11 guys that are uh, with him. Judas had gone off to start the betrayal of, of Jesus. But Jesus is, he, he gives a very specific prayer for specific people the night before he dies. Like he prays this prayer, and then he's arrested. By the next afternoon, he's actually in the grave. And in verse uh, 15, 16, 17, 18, Jesus prays uh, this way. My prayer is not that you take them, referring to us uh, and his disciples, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Jesus actually prays a prayer that you, you and I will be saved not from your place, not from your circumstances, or not from the things that drag you down, but saved for your place. Saved for the people who are around you. Saved 
for your circle of influence. God saves you not for your sake, but for the sake of the people who God's work in you will bear witness to those people. So God isn't saving you from Babylon to bring you back to the promised land. God is actually saving you in Babylon for Babylon. That's metaphorical, so in case you aren't catching that. God is not saving you so that you can leave where you are and go into like a holy Christian huddle. God is saving you because of where you are is full of people that God loves and God is going to use his work in your life, whether it seems dramatic or not, God is going to use his work in your life in order to glorify himself in the lives of the people around you. So you might be in a situation where you're like, there are no Christians here. You might work in a place or be in a family or be in a class or on a team where you're like, there are no people who live anything close to morally where I am. And there's a lot of temptation to like desire or to want to be in a situation where everyone's a Christian, where everyone acts the way you and votes the way you do and thinks the way you do. There's a temptation to, to want that. And God actually has saved you, not so that you can have what you want, but so that God can have what he wants. And what he wants is the light in your life to be a beacon to the people who are living in the darkness. The, the reason Jesus prays this is he says, I want the people to be just like me. And Jesus was not of a place. Like Jesus didn't belong to the world or to the places that he lived in. So the people of God are not of their place, just as much of Je as Jesus is not of his place. To define Jesus as being from Israel, it just misses the whole point of who Jesus is. And so to define yourself as being from the place that you're in, as much as that feels like home, those feelings can be actually can drag you away from what God is trying to do in your life. Those feelings of wanting to be in a place where you're more comfortable because of place, of wanting to be like a sense of safety because of place, those feelings aren't, uh, this is judgy, aren't necessarily always the best thing for you. See how I tried to backtrack that because I felt judgy? So let's say that again, just totally judgy. Those feelings are a lie. <laughs> Because their safety, your identity, your sense of place, if you're a follower of God, has no physical location. The Bible actually refers to Christians as citizens of heaven. So someday you will be in a place where you're like, oh, I belong here. And that day will be shortly after you die. As a Christian who's a follower of Jesus, there will always be a sense of uneasiness, of I don't quite fit here, or the way I think is different than the way the world thinks. If you don't experience that, I would hope you got saved recently and your sanctification is a very slow process. Because the goals and the values and the dreams of God are much and radically different than the goals and values and dreams of the world. God has very little interest in your personal um, gains for the purpose of comfort. God has very little interest 
and you saying, oh, those 80, 90 years I spent on earth were great. That's a lack of belief in eternity. Do you see that? If you believe in eternal life, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you believe that death has no hold on you and you will live forever with God as you were designed to. That means your 80, 90 years here is like this, and then your eternity goes on forever. So that after you've done a million years with God, your worrying about your comfort in your 80 or 90 years seems rather frivolous. You're worrying about what do people think about me if I tell them about God? What do people think about me if I make a choice that's different than the like, accepted moralism of our people or accepted moralism of modern society? If I'm different, I will experience a lack of comfort. And yet God is saying, oh, okay, <laughs> so you're going to be uncomfortable for 80 years. That's a lack of understanding or a lack of belief in the eternality of your existence in the presence of God. So for a Christian to worry more about their place on earth than their place in heaven actually betrays what they actually believe. And I'm not saying that, like, seriously, it's not easy, right? Because where you are right now is very immediate. And when I talk about things like eternity, uh, that seems very, very far away, doesn't it? Like, it seems like I that's difficult mentally to just grab a hold of. I'm not saying that you're going to turn around and say, oh, I'm good now, right? No stress forever. There should be lots of stress in your life <laughs> because you live in a very uncomfortable place if you're a follower of Jesus. And it's not uncomfortable in the way that you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be arrested, but the beliefs that you hold are going to be divergent from the beliefs of all the people around you, especially living in the Pacific Northwest. Which you would think, oh man, that's a bummer. Like, why couldn't we live in the deep south where everybody's a Christian? And the joy is that God has decided to use you as a light in a place that's very, very dark. If you turn on a flashlight in a room where all the light's on, it's the most boring thing in the world. Well, it's not the most boring thing. It's very boring. There are other things that are more boring, right? We all had to take math in high school. But when, <laughs> there, when we think about it being light, a small light isn't exciting. And yet when we go through Christmas, everybody puts up tiny lights and they turn them on at night and it's fantastic. People drive around looking at them. And the same experience is true when we talk about Christians. People will want to see and find it remarkable when you shine a small light because they're, they're just for some reason that draws out a contrast to the darkness that's around. And just like in the video, uh, when the girl was living uh, and taking a stand for Jesus in her college years, when it's an, an unpopular thing to do or an untrendy thing to do, people see that and for some reason are attracted to that. And I think that actually is happening at an increasing rate. If you talk to your friends who hate Christians, right? And we all have friends who hate Christians. Most of the time, you hate those Christians too. Because you actually, those Christians are on TV. Those Christians are saying things that are hateful. 
The, the Christians that they hate are inflammatory. The Christians that they hate are condemning. And this sounds really judgy, doesn't it? You can amen that if you want. I'm a judgy person. But these, when we talk to the people who hate Christians, they're not saying, oh, the world is very hopeless and these people always have hope. Man, I hate them. Nobody says that. But the Christians who are saying things might be rough right now, but it's not always going to be like that. And who really live that way, who have, this, have been sanctified, Jesus says they've been sanctified by truth, meaning the word of God, and so the word of God has been implanted in them, and they have studied the word and meditated on the word, and now they've been sent on mission, and they've been consumed with the mission, and with the same mission of Jesus to seek and save the lost, the people who still have hope, even though you shouldn't, even though there's not much evidence, like there isn't a whole lot out there, especially in the world that we live in, that's saying God is really in control and God knows what he's doing and God is going to do good things. The people who are still holding on to hope, people who have no hope, will ask you questions, will come towards you, and they want to know how you see there being hope in the world. And I'm not talking about like political hope. People made the same mistake with Jesus. They thought he was the political savior. And, I, and I'm not really concerned with a political savior. I'm not concerned with the prosperity of my place versus someone else's place because I don't belong to a place. But if I believe that God is at work and I do, like, I, I do the work of seeing it, and remembering it, and learning it, so that it, the way that God is at work affects me more than the things around me are affecting me, and then I'm able to talk about the hope that I have and the forward thinking that I have because I believe that God has not abandoned us and that God doesn't belong to two or three generations ago and God is still at work today, that God isn't stuck back in Israel when all his people have moved over to Babylon, but God is omnipresent he's everywhere and that the hope is that god can bring all of us back into right relationship with him no matter how far you are from god when we talk about how to talk to your friends or how to live for jesus in your world instead of starting with here's the questions you ask in order to initiate that conversation i back up to a point where you say here's how you live this is in, in peter's letters in the bible Here's how you live so that people ask you questions. And the Bible actually, in Peter's letters, actually says, always have an, an, an answer for the reason, for the hope that you have. Not an answer for the reason for the moral judgments that you have, but an answer for the reason for the hope that you have. So that when people turn to you and ask questions, their questions are, why do you think the world is getting better and not worse? Because everything around me looks like it's getting worse. And you can say there's this great trend towards the redemption of God that started in the Garden of Eden, worked its way through the Old Testament, had this miraculous jump when Jesus came to town, and his death and burial and resurrection actually enables us to have hope for a future because nothing can separate us from the love of God. You'll be able to love people because you believe genuinely that God loves them. 
And when I said you'll be able to love people, immediately you thought of that person, right? The one that's probably just beyond the love of God. Like, I know God loves everyone, but... Mm. <laughs> when you're able to begin to see that God is at work in them, even though it seems like God is very far from them, you'll begin to have hope and begin to have a soft heart towards the world around you, which actually acts as a beacon of light because Jesus has sent you into a dark place. So we begin to be thankful for living in a post-Christian, in, in our part of the country, a very post-Christian culture. Our part of the country is the most post-Christian culture. And we begin to thank God for putting us here because it's so easy to live differently in a Christian way here. It's so easy to stand out when you're the only one in the room. It's so easy to have what seems like a remarkable amount of hope when everybody has very negative levels of hope. And so the task of being a Christian, I think, in your post-Christian world is not more difficult, it's actually easier. And that's a weird way to think. And not everybody will agree with that uh, because you will face real-life ostracism and stuff like that. But the trick or the key to understanding the ease at which you can live for Jesus is understanding your lack of desire for ease in this life. God is calling you, Jesus is calling you to a harder life, to more challenge. He's calling you to a greater life with more stories and more experience because he wants you to live with a soft heart in a world that's very, very hard all the way around you. Let me pray for us in that way, all right? Let's stand as I pray. All right, Jesus, our God, I want to ask for those of us in this room who would confess a hard heart that you would remove our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. And I'm speaking of the people who know you, who love you, who read their Bibles, who study, who pray, who worship you. Some of us, myself included, allow our hearts to grow hard towards different kinds of people or different individuals or people that believe, pardon me, that be believe or behave in different ways. We allow our hearts to grow hard and, and we feel against them. And I pray that you would, for the people who are, have already confessed faith in you, that you would sanctify us by your truth, draw us to your word, to the scriptures, and allow the scriptures to speak into us in such a way that our heart begins to be replaced and be soft. Living as a Christian in a very post-Christian world, living in a, as an exile in Babylon like the people of God did, Two and a half thousand years ago. Seems like a daunting task, God, and yet you've chosen us and placed us in our place, not so that you can be miraculous and save us from this place, but you can save us in this place. And so I pray for every person here who lives in a place of darkness, who lives in a place or sometimes have jobs where there doesn't lend itself to hope, or they're in families when, with people who you just don't have a lot of hope for them uh, turning their hearts over to you or giving their lives to you or coming to know you in a saving way. Jesus, the those of us who live in those dark places, I pray that you would
give us a soft heart so that we can shine and be a beacon to the people around us. And even if many of us in this, feel, in this room feel like the very worst Christians, like we genuinely suck at being a Christian, but the dimmest light seems very bright in a dark place. And so I thank you, in a strange way, I thank you for putting us in a dark place so that the challenge of witnessing for you, of bearing witness of your love for you, isn't that great. Having a remarkable hope is rather simple when there's a remarkable level of despair in the people around us. So God, move in our hearts, not for our sakes, but for your own, not for our benefit, but for the benefit of the people who aren't here this morning, who you love, and we will come into contact all this week as you have sent us from this place to our mission field, our, our streets, our cities, our classes, our teams, our clubs, our groups, our jobs, and our families. By your grace and by your great mercy, we pray this. Amen. We, um...